Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. March is Women's History Month, and in this episode, you'll meet speechwriter Donna Rubin, the creator of an online archive she's titled Speaking While Female. She describes how she's become obsessed with tracking down important speeches made by women throughout history that she thinks have been unjustly overlooked or forgotten. She'll tell us more about her work on the archive, and we'll hear clips from speeches by Queen Elizabeth II, Barbara Jordan, Peggy Noonan, Phyllis Schlafly, and others. A few years ago, I started wondering, why are we only hearing about and learning about men's speeches in history? Shame on the age and on its principles. Four score and seven years. The lack of money is the root of all evil. This was their fight. Tear down this wall. I went looking for speeches by women in history. I searched through hundreds of speech anthologies. They're not there. So I dug them out of archives, out of print books, old newspapers. I eventually found thousands of speeches by women, speeches that the history books forgot about, ignored, or simply overlooked. Because it turns out women have been speaking in history, even if the history books haven't acknowledged it. And Donna Rubin joins us from C-SPAN Studio in New York City. The results of that inquiry is a website and ultimately a, a new book called Speaking While Female. How did you get started on this project? Well, I come out of the world of speechwriting. I was a journalist, and then I became a speechwriter, and then a speech coach. So I was already very focused on the world of oratory and speech. And I began to notice in the work that I was doing with my clients that it was particularly hard for women clients to speak in public. Not all of them, not every woman, and a lot of men have trouble with public speaking, but more women than more men have trouble speaking in public, putting their views into the public square. So I already had a gendered focus when I thought about the speech world. Um, And one day... I went up to my bookshelf and I just happened to pull down a volume that I'd had for some years. It was um, 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 William Sapphire's volume of speeches, an anthology called Lend Me Your Ears. Of course, Lend Me Your Ears comes from Shakespeare, from Julius Caesar. And I flipped it open and started looking through that volume. And I was quite astonished. And then I started actually counting up the speeches. I wanted to see how many speeches were by men and how many were by women. Now, this is a volume that claims to purports to present the best in oratory from the world, from all over the world, across time. And when I finished counting, I discovered that there were 202 speeches by men and 15 by women. And I I consider that the moment that the scales fell from my eyes. If your research, as the video suggested, uncovered that there are impactful speeches by women made throughout history, why aren't they in history books or anthologies? Well, it's, I don't think it's any one reason, but I think it's a number of reasons that are all closely related. Um, For one thing, I mean, what we access in our understanding of the past, in in history, in terms of what we comprehend as uh, history, has all been given to us through gatekeepers, right? Through historians, through journalists, 
through editors and publishers who compile these anthologies and collections. And um, I think for a number of reasons, these gatekeepers were not very interested in what women had to say. Now, you can hear different explanations for this. Some people say women have been silenced. People talk about how hard it is for women to speak in the public realm, in the marketplace of ideas, without bearing the brunt of, you know, of criticism, criticism of their looks, of their attire, of their voice, how they speak, how they express themselves. Um, but finally, I come down to the explanation that um, the gatekeepers of our culture weren't very interested in women. So what I did after I made that discovery about the William Sapphire volume is I started um, down a, a kind of a hunt, a chase, and I uh, eventually bought about 230 different anthologies in the English language, going back to 1790s. The first was in the 1790s all the way up to the present. And I just counted them. I just counted all the speeches by men and the speeches by women. And I put them all in a little infographic that you can see. It's on my website. And the speeches by men are all colored in blue and the speeches by women in green. And it's just a sea of blue. It's only in very recent times that we've credited it all and paid attention to what women had to say. And we have an assumption, a large general cultural assumption, that women were not the best speakers, that women weren't speaking, that women were silenced. And um, in general, it's true women didn't speak as much as men for a variety of reasons, but it's not true that women weren't speaking. In fact, women have been speaking, um, hundreds of them, thousands of them, but we just haven't had access to their words. Either they would speak and there was no journalist there because a journalist didn't think it was important to go to an event where a woman was speaking, or if a journalist was there, they didn't take down the, you know, the transcribe the, the words that a woman said, or if they did transcribe them, they didn't publish them in the paper the next day, so their words were not recorded, and if they don't get recorded, then we don't remember them. Walk me through a, a brief history of uh, social norms in the United States regarding women speaking in the public square. It certainly has changed over time, and, and uh, certainly there was this period in the 19th century, especially, where women were confined to the, more or less to the domestic sphere. So uh, walk me through from the revolutionaries, Abigail Adams types, all the way to today in just a, a brief timeline about when things changed and maybe why they changed. Yeah, certainly. So uh, the earliest speeches by American women that I have found, I found a few, a couple that are in the 17th century. So we know that we have the testimony from Anne Hutchinson, for example, at her heresy trial and Margaret Brent. These would be in the 1630s, 1640s. But then we go a long time where we don't have any records of women speaking. But women were speaking. The earliest speakers in America were preachers, itinerant preachers for the most part. There were women like uh, Dorothy Ripley or Harina Lee or many, many others who would travel around the roads and byways, you know, the back roads, and preach. And um, so their words, by and large, are not recorded. Um, or if they are, I haven't found them yet. They're in old records that I haven't accessed yet. So that would be, that would take us up to say that, you know, 1800, around then, we start to see a few women um, speaking in public. Uh, one of the women in my book 
or in my book to be uh, Deborah Sanson Gannett spoke. She's the one who dressed as a revolutionary soldier, disguised herself as a man and fought in the Revolutionary War. And she became the first female paid speaker. She went on a lecture tour in 1802 and 1803 and was the first woman to get on a stage and speak and make money off of it. Uh, so that, that would have been an early example. Of course, we have Mariah Stewart, who spoke to mixed audiences. There was an understanding or a prohibition against speaking to mixed or promiscuous audiences, which would include men and women, but still they spoke. In theory, they weren't supposed to, but, but they did. Dorothy Ripley did, and, and other people did as well. Um, but of course, as we move more into the Victorian era, we have this um, notion that you refer to of the spheres, right? There was a man's sphere and a woman's sphere, different spheres of influence. The man's sphere, the male sphere, was external in the world of politics and public affairs. And the woman's sphere was domestic. It was focused on domestic concerns, social relations, uh, her, the children and the community. And then, of course, in the church, in religious communities, there was a longstanding idea that women shouldn't participate um, as preachers or as ministers in a house of worship because of um, something that was in Corinthians about uh, the fact that women should be silent in church. So for all these reasons, there was pressure for women not to be speaking in public. Or if they did, they could speak in front of women's audiences, women's groups. And like in the 1840s, there were a number of anti-slavery organizations that popped up all along the eastern seaboard, and women spoke at those with, um, with enthusiasm. But then, of course, we move into the Civil War period, and things started to change. Anna Dickinson was one of the most popular speakers in America. She spoke, she spoke to Congress, and she spoke all over the United States for years. She was a very popular orator in the Civil War years. And then after the Civil War, the um, movement for women's suffrage heats up from the 1860s to, you know, right through to when we when women won the vote in... Um, you know, in, tw in 1920, lots of women started speaking. That's when they really entered into um, the public speak speaking sphere. So in my anthology, I have lots and lots of women from the 1880s, 1890s, um, into, you know, the turn of the century. So our social attitudes changed over the years, and as they did, and as more women spoke up and broke these taboos, then they emboldened other women to, to follow suit. Tell me about the work that you've accomplished so far. What's the state of your archive, your online archive? Well, I am obsessed. I am possessed and obsessed with this topic. Um, I used to have hobbies, and now I just dig up old, women, old speeches by women. And it's thrilling to me because I always say my favorite speech is the one that I just uncovered because it opens up a whole new world of women's achievement and women's accomplishment and women's voice. So the archive exists, and it is online and free to anyone who has a, um, an Internet you know, access. And I always am clear about that because there are places in the world where women don't have free access to the Internet. But on purpose, I want this archive to be available to every woman and girl around the world so that she can see what a powerful woman looks like and sounds like. In some cases, I have just audio clips so we can just hear 
women's words. I have transcripts. I have, you know, images from manuscripts. I've added and added and added to it, and I have more than 2,500 speeches now. Some of them are links to third-party sites. Some of them, I, of course, I don't have the intellectual property rights to publish. I try to be very careful about that. But it is a global, a global resource for women and girls around the world because we know that representation really does matter. And when we see ourselves represented and we understand that women have been doing this for centuries, they've been stepping up into this public square, putting their ideas forward, despite the criticism that they might get, despite the scrutiny, and that they've been successful and change the world with their words, then that is, um, it's an empowering experience. That's what I want it to be. So um, the site is free and it will be in perpetuity. The bulk of the 2,500, I would presume, are English speakers. You mentioned you want it to be a global resource, but uh, how are you handling language difficulties and inclusion of women from other parts of the world? Well, I started out by just having speeches in English, and then I started doing more research and learning about all the remarkable women in other parts of the world who spoke, women in Argentina and in Chile, women in Europe, of course, women in Russia. And my linguistic skills aren't so my language skills aren't so extensive. I can dig them out and understand them in Spanish and French, and then I've been trying to learn enough German to be able to at least to find them, at least identify them and put them on the site. But I don't have the resources to translate them. In a few instances, I've, I've paid to have translations, and some of them have already been translated if they're important enough. But in general, you know, the ones that are from other countries and other languages, they're just... They're just on the site in those, in those languages waiting to be translated into English. Have you begun crowdsourcing, asking for or, or getting solicitations from other people who are interested in the topic? I haven't yet, and, but I am, as you, you mentioned at the beginning, I'm getting ready to publish an anthology of women's speeches, American women's speeches, and I'm running a Kickstarter campaign. And a Kickstarter, of course, is aimed at raising money, but it's also aimed at building a community. It's a vehicle for establishing a community and reaching out to like-minded uh, kindred spirits, you might say. And so my hope is that through this campaign, I'll be able to make connections with people who get the importance of this and understand why it matters and will help me with the translation and um, finding other speeches, digging them out of archives and and putting them on the site. Donna Rubin, I have many more questions about the collection, but I thought it would be uh, important and valuable to let people see some of what you've gathered uh, so they can understand the scope of the collection. And uh, the direction really took in pulling some clips are uh, current issues because we're in a time with so many things going on uh, in our world and our country. So the first one I wanted to show is actually uh, from uh, your collection. It's Peggy Noonan speaking at the Reagan Foundation in June of 2009. And let's listen and we'll come back to you. We must not forget the Reaganesque respect for the reality of the world rooted in Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk and a Reaganesque desire for peace. Reagan thought if you fight, if you have to fight, then you win. His way, Ronald Reagan's way, was to think, to look, say, it's the Soviet Union, the great challenger of his time, and to think and say, 
the Soviet Union is involved in wickedness. It is itself at war with the very nature of man. We will speak the truth to it and about it. That is Peggy Noonan, herself a speechwriter, who uh, then in her career became an author, columnist, pundit. How did uh, she make it into the collection, and especially a speech like this where she's not talking about herself, but about her former boss, Ronald Reagan? I'm very interested in and observing, noting how people pay tribute to others. And of course, I, I have a whole bunch of uh, speeches about um, that fall into the category of individuals paying tribute to others that they admire. Because when in that act of paying tribute, it could be at a funeral or a memorial service. In this case, it was at, um, at the Reagan Foundation or the Reagan Institute. Um, it's an opportunity to explore and laud the values that, um, that the speaker identifies in the person that they're paying homage to. And so the values... It's a place where values really are championed and spoken about in a very direct way. Um, I have enormous respect for Peggy Noonan as a speechwriter. She is uh, hands down um, one of the best phrase makers of our times. She's a brilliant phrase maker. She has an ability to capture a situation in language that is um, evocative. So we have Peggy Noonan to thank for the Thousand Points of Light and um, the uh, Ronald Reagan speech at the, after the Challenger explosion, the um, Break the Surly Bonds of Earth, which she took from a poem, uh, the boys at Point, Point du Hoc uh, at the 40th anniversary of the D-Day. She has a flair for drama and understands the way that language can cause a dramatic um, emotional response in, in the audience. So that's why I included her in that instance. As a speechwriting professional yourself, I'm, when we talked about the history of women's speeches, uh, in general, do you have a sense of when public speakers began to use people such as yourselves, third-party speechwriters, as opposed to penning and speaking their own words? When did that trend become popular? Well, um, are you talking about in American history yes, or just in general? Let's, let's talk about American history since it, it's what yeah, model we're uh, familiar with. The, I believe, I'm not, I'm not real clear about this, but I think the first presidential spe uh, speechwriter was Judson Welliver. But, I'm, but um, generally in the, you know, in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, uh, presidents used to, started using presidential speechwriters. Um, and then it became more widely acceptable in other in other realms in business realms of course in social realms people began um really recognizing that it was its own craft its own specialty and of course people at the top who make a lot of speeches don't have the the bandwidth and the time to focus on that when you listen to a speechwriter like peggy noonan make a speech is there a difference from someone who is, is part of the craft uh, delivering it as opposed to someone who is not a professional speechwriter? Well, I think people who understand how to write for the ear as opposed to writing for the eye uh, understand cadences. They understand the musicality of oral delivery. They understand, even if they don't know the names for them, they understand many of the rhetorical devices that the 
ancients laid out for us, uh, the, the ancient Greeks and the Romans, anaphora and all, all the other language um, turns, ability to turn a phrase in a repetitious way, using repetition and, and rhythm. So I think speech writers or people who write for the ear, when they give a speech themselves, they naturally employ a lot of those strategies. Uh, I think the same is true, by the way, for people who grew up in, um, in the church, specifically um, uh, in a, a church setting where they heard a lot of uh, uh, sermons given, delivered in a thunderous way or in a dramatic way, in a powerful way. They imbibed or they absorbed those rhythms and that musicality. And some of the best speechwriters that I know come from that background. They had, they, they'll say, oh, I grew up in a church. My father was a minister. I always heard every Sunday those speeches. And so they, in, they learn those lessons, even if they don't really think of them when they're writing and speaking, they've absorbed them. A couple more questions about process before our next clip. When you have a person included, a woman included in your, your uh, archive, is it one speech that's chosen or might you have an entire library of speeches that person has given? Oh, it just depends. But if I find uh, a number of speeches, I'll put them. I'll put them in. I put in. I often put in as many as I can find. I mean, it varies. But just for example, look at the great Helen Keller. She was an amazing speaker. Of course, she was. You know, she was a disabled. She couldn't hear. She was blind and deaf. But she had an amazing speaking career. She traveled for years and spoke. And so I have so many speeches by her and they are really, truly inspiring. So I must have, I don't know, 10 or 12 speeches by her in the archive. If I find them by people like that, I just put them in because I think that they are, they comprise a body of work by that person that I want people to know about. And there are lots of examples of that. I'm going to make a generalization to see if you agree with it. Speechmakers uh, generally want to change the direction of society, um, making them more progressive, perhaps, than the general public. And I'm wondering, well, is, is my theory correct? And then secondly, if that's the case, how do you strive for ideological diversity among the people represented in your collection? Oh, well, that's a good, those are two good questions. One is, um, first is that... I don't think I agree that they strive for a progressive end point, but I do agree very strongly that a speech is a vehicle for change. You know, if you finish a speech and you haven't told, given your audience a call to action, if you haven't asked the, the audience to do something, then the speech is usually, you know, not a success. Either you're asking them to recall someone with fondness, with fondness, as we spoke about in a tribute, and live up to the values that that person embodied, or change, take a course of action, sign a petition, you know, save energy, whatever it is you want your audience to do, a speech is a vehicle for action. So, yes, I think that means that speakers and speech writers are reformist. They want to reform and then they want to make change, they want to create change. But as for what the ideological nature of that change is, I don't think it's particularly progressive or any particular um, re reflection of any particular ideological point of view. 
So people. And that, then what was the second question? Well, that was really it. Is if if people are accessing your collection, they'll find people from all points in the ideological spectrum. Well, I really tried. I have to say, I really tried. I think anybody who spent five minutes with with me would know I fall on the left side of the spectrum. But I really tried very hard. I have tried very hard to find views that reflect a wide range of of perspectives, and. I think that is critical to um, the, the evolution of ideas. It's fundamental to our democracy that we put different ideas out into the public square and we examine them and we let them clash. You know, I also um, spend some of my spare time working as a speech and debate um, uh, judge. I debate high school, I judge high school debates. And in debate, there's something called clash, at least in Lincoln-Douglas debate, the debates are judged on how well they clash. It's a clash of ideas. And that's something that I am, in a sense, trying to create with this, with this archive, a real genuine clash of ideas. So, for example, in, I've broken the speeches up into various sections, just for convenience, and I have a section on suffrage, on women, the women's vote and suffrage. But I, I really went out of my way to find a number of speeches by women who were against the vote. Because there were. There was a very loud uh, contingent of women who were opposed to the women's vote for a variety of reasons. Or reproductive issues. I have a section on reproductive issues. There are far more speeches in that section by women who were um, advocating for reproductive um, tool for contraception and for reproductive control over women's bodies. But I certainly made sure to include people who had the opposite point of view and points in between because I think that's healthy. And also, I should say, it's obvious that I, I don't and can't agree with all the, all the points of view. That, that's an absurd idea. There's so many speeches on there. But I have a lot of respect for speakers and speeches that even espouse views that I don't agree with. I can admire the strength of the argument, the way they've laid out the argument, the courage with which they've made the arguments. So I, I find a lot to admire in a variety in, viewpoints all across the spectrum. As you and I are talking, there is an all-day emergency session at the United Nations, and the UN is the site of the next clip we're going to show our audience. It is from Queen Elizabeth II in 1957 speaking at the United Nations. This assembly was born of the endeavors of countless men and women from different nations who, over the centuries, have pursued the aims of the preservation of peace between nations, equality of justice for all before the law, and the right of the peoples of the world to live their lives in freedom and security. We are still far from the achievement of the ideals which I have mentioned. But we must not be discouraged. The peoples of the world expect the United Nations to persevere in its efforts. Donna Rubin, that was Queen Elizabeth in 1957, about five years into her reign uh, over the United Kingdom. We now have 70 years of watching her 
in her position and uh, gave you a great deal of material, I'm sure, to look through. What are your observations as a uh, speechwriter and a speechmaker yourself about how her style has changed over the course of her tenure in, uh, as Queen of England? Well, she is an, uh, a fascinating figure. And in fact, the first example that we have of a speech by her, she gave when she was 14 years old. It was in 1940. So um, we have been watching her for 70, 80 years, really, almost, right? And she has been a model of um, clarity and probity. She she exudes a kind of dignity and a kind of purposefulness in her speech that I find extremely admirable. If you go back and listen to that first audio clip we have of her, it was it was after the war started, World War II had started, but before the Allies had joined the war effort. I think Pearl Harbor was just a year away. And she is speaking to children of the Commonwealth, right? Children in... Um, in Canada, in New Zealand, in South Africa, with a message of peace. It was a children's hour, BBC children's hour broadcast, but it also had a political context because she was sending a message to the United States because Britain was hoping the United States would join the effort, the war effort. So she has, from the very beginning, she has been keenly aware of the power of her oratory on different levels to project a, a certain values and certain um, uh, end, end goals. And I think she's a very, very uh, savvy speaker. And, of course, we have seen her change through the years. I mean, we've seen her talk about you know, Diana, the death of Diana. We've seen her talk about her Annas Horribilis, the, the awful year when her children ran amok with, you know, divorces and scandals. We've seen her in a number of different contexts. Oh, just recently with COVID, reassuring the British people, we shall meet again. She is a, a, a pillar of um, a presence of calm and, and um, probity that I have great admiration for. That particular clip that we used, which is from your, <clears throat> excuse me, from your site, Speaking While Female, it, it is from YouTube, and I, it just beg the question for me, how important YouTube as its own repository has been to the efforts you've been making in finding women's speeches? Oh, it's absolutely critical. I use YouTube all the time. I only include links to YouTube, though, when I, when I have to. If I can find other sources, I would prefer to, because practically speaking, YouTube links break. For people who don't know, break just means it's perfectly good one day, it's live one day, and you go in two days later and the link is, is just broken. And I don't exactly know why that happens, but they're not secure, those links. So, you know, I always prefer to have a transcript as well, if I can find one. And, of course, I use YouTube for historical, more, you know, for older pieces, for historical pieces, and when I want to give people a, a visual of what someone sounds like and looks like. Um, so YouTube is an invaluable tool, and it grows. I mean, it's astonishing how it grows and grows and grows. Even in the two years or so since I've been working on this archive, it seems like there's some, sometimes I'll go and look for someone and I can't find them, and then I'll go back a few months later and there's work by them. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been very interesting to see how much of our intellectual content 
how much of our cultural expression has moved into into digital formats. You referenced this earlier, but uh, tell me a little bit of uh, how challenging the rights and usage part of your process has been. I mean, for intellectual property rights? Right. Um, well, I try to be very careful, and of course, it is a global site, and I went out of my way to learn about U.S. IP rights, intellectual property rights, but they're not the same around the world, so it is a, it is a problem. If I had the resources, I would have a lawyer, the, uses of, the use of an IP lawyer who would advise me. So I'm very clear, I make it very clear and very explicit on the site that I try to be respectful and that if someone feels like I have something on the site that's not um, kosher, that shouldn't be there, just to let me know. And I'll, I'll, be, you know, I'll look into it and certainly take it down if it shouldn't be there. But you know, IP rights are very, very important to protecting our intellectual output and our um, uh, artists and writers' um, content, and I respect that. But uh, it does mean that it makes it more challenging, especially in this century, because the, the intellectual property rights um, are, t- you know, are time. So I can, you know, when it comes to transcripts in the United States, I can only publish them if they were, you know, within the with a person has been dead 70 years. And it's, anyway, without explaining it, I try, to, I try to be as careful as I can. I'm going to go back to clips. This one merges two contemporary issues, uh, political division and also racial justice. This is Barbara Jordan giving the keynote address to the 1976 Democratic National Convention. It's about a minute long. Now, now that I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions, but I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. Donna Rubin, how uh, much before that time had women ever given keynote addresses at political conventions? I'm not sure about that, but she was the first, I know she was the first African-American woman to deliver um, a, a keynote at, a, at, the, at the Democratic National Convention. She, was a, she had a thundering presence, Barbara Jordan. She was a powerhouse speaker, and she exuded, at, really, indignation and, um, and moral, a certain level of moral indignation and a certain reaching towards uh, the best of America, reaching towards our best values. She was um, unforgettable in her presence, and, of course, she had that deep basso profundo voice and that musicality that I referred to before. In fact, in the clip that you played, you can hear the way she pauses for effect and the way she uses repetition, the way her phrases build up one upon another with a certain kind of 
cadence and momentum. You know, Barbara Jordan was a uh, star debater at Texas Southern University, and um, she's a very, very skillful speaker. She taps, she has the delivery skills and the sense of outrage combined makes a very unique delivery. On that note, before other questions about her topics, uh, as you coached clients on, female clients on delivery of speeches, uh, some of the points you just made have to be some of the lessons that you give as well, phrasing and, and finding a voice that resonates with the audience. Can you talk to me about how you coach particularly women speakers? Right. Well, of course, the single most important quality of a speaker in terms of making a connection with the audience has to be authenticity. The audience has to feel that the person who's speaking to them is who they say they are, that there's a genuineness to them, a real human being there. And it's, I would almost say that beyond that, nothing, nothing else really matters as much. A person can have a speech impediment. They could have an awkward tick in the way they present themselves. They could speak in a soft voice. They could speak in a thundering voice like Barbara Jordan. But if that person is genuine and authentic, then they have the, cap the possibility of truly making that connection, that emotional connection with the audience, and changing the audience. So it's very important to think about or realize that the most important relationship between the speaker and the audience, there is a dynamic, a kind of exchange that happens between the speaker and the audience that is emotional in nature, even when it's a policy speech, even when it's a speech about something legislative or something that might seem cut and dry. If it is cut and dry and boring and flat, there is no connection there. So I always coach and encourage speakers to get comfortable with themselves, to be comfortable speaking as they are. Can they improve? Can they speak with a more resonant voice? Can they hold their bodies differently? There's a million things you can talk about and tweak, but the person has, to, an individual has to be speaking from his or her core identity. So two of the major themes of Barbara Jordan's speech is uh, women's rights, racial justice, of course, the whole theme of what it means to be American in our society. But on the women's rights and racial justice issues, as you reference, those are some of the earliest topics of speeches made in the 19th century by the abolitionist woman movement and the suffragist movement. So let's talk about that aspect of your collection. How did you find those in the age before recorded speeches and how are you presenting them today? Well, I find them like I find most of the speeches. I dig them out of old archives. I look in memoirs. I look in newspapers. Of course, I have a subscription to newspapers.com. I look in various, I have various places that I look online. And occasionally I visit archives and I request. Now, of course, during COVID, I you make requests to archives and libraries asking for copies of, of content, of material. Um, in terms of the abolitionist content, there were really hundreds and hundreds of abolitionist speakers, and I only have scratched the surface. I have only a small fragment of them. Some of them I found in, in old newspapers. Um, but the thing that drives me insane, wild, 
um, is when I hear about a woman who was a, you know, a woman in the context of a historical discussion or analysis, and I'll click on Wikipedia. Wikipedia has been very helpful to me. And I'll click on Wikipedia, and the first line will say, she was a well-known orator in her day, and I've never heard of her. So then I'll go and look, and I can't find any speeches by her. And I'll think, this person is known for her oratory and her, her, the oral expression of her ideas, and we don't have any speeches that, you know, that are easily accessible. Well, that's like, you know, that's like, I'm like a dog with a bone then. <laughs> I can't rest till I find a, a speech by her. But the, the rhetoric of anti-slavery, of abolition, is powerful. It is very powerful. And there were, you know, ant- abolition societies in Massachusetts, one I know about, that sent women on circuits, well, sent women and men on speaking circuits, including over to um, England, to the British Isles, in order to garner support for the Northern cause, for abolition, for anti-slavery. And uh, like Sarah Parker Remen, she went in 1859, she was sent by the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and went and spoke to, to audiences in Leicester and Leeds and Yorkshire, Manchester, all these places. An African-American woman, a black woman, speaking primarily to white audiences and telling those audiences, you are wealthy, you're, you know, this is the north of England during the industrial era, you're wealthy because of um, slavery in American South. The, the cotton trade that is making you so wealthy is, um, is causing this enormous moral and human toll across the ocean. So those speeches, you know, Sometimes we don't have the transcripts, we have descriptions of them. Someone would attend and would say, she talked about this or that or the other, and I can't use that in my archive. I really try hard just to get the transcripts, the actual words. Do you ever have people record the speech so it can be heard by the ear as opposed to read by the eye? Well, the only time I've done that was a year ago for Women's History Month. Um, I uh, worked together with a group of women in Singapore, and we had a marathon reading of women's speeches by women all over the world. It was really thrilling. We had women in Singapore, in Japan, women in all over Europe, in Israel, and in the United States, and we read speeches by other people and we recorded those. And we rehearsed them ahead of time, and some of the women wore, you know, wore costumes. We had women in, women in France reading speeches by women during the French Revolution. It was, it was really thrilling. It was during the French Revolution and then, and then later during the Paris Commune. There were a lot of women who spoke out in those times to, you know, women whose, Louise Michel, we have their speeches and their transcripts of their speeches, and I've put a lot of them on the site when I can find them. How did that event all come together? With a lot of planning. Did, <laughs> did, did you, plan, it was, did or, you it was, plan and organize the whole thing? Uh, no, I was the curator. It was my idea, and I curated it, so that means I found all the speeches from all over the world, uh, selections of speeches, excerpts. The women in Singapore arranged it. Um, it's a, a group called Keynote Women, and they, you know, they did all the hustling and the arranging, but it was on Singapore time. So we had two different sessions, and the first session was like 11 o'clock New York time, and the second one I think was 3 in the morning New York, New York time. So, I, of course, I stayed up and participated and read speeches you know, at three in the morning. But it was thrilling because there really were women from all over the world on this, you know, on, at the same time celebrating women's voices. 
We have about 15 minutes left in our hour with you. The next is a comparison of two speakers on the topic of reproductive rights. You said you've got a pretty big collection on this. We've chosen two. One uh, we're going to start with is Phyllis Schlafly. And C-SPAN viewers of a long time will know her as a multi-decades uh, conservative activist who created an organization called the Eagle Forum. We're going to listen to her in uh, 2007 and talking about reproductive rights. It is definitely not enough for a candidate to say, I'm pro-life. It's not sufficient to say he believes Roe v. Wade should be overturned because the president has no power to do that. We want to know what the candidate will do as president to advance protection for unborn babies. We want him to promise to veto the Freedom of Choice Act, for which the feminists, led by Senator Barbara Boxer, have just started an all-out campaign. The Freedom of Choice Act would prohibit government at any level from interfering with our efforts to protect human life. The Freedom of Choice Act would wipe out every single pro-life bill we've passed in the last 34 years, including parental notice, parental consent, the woman's right to no law, waiting periods, fetal homicide, abortion funding restrictions, and partial birth abortion bans. Don Rubin, I'm going to move to the second clip and then come back and talk about this issue and, and how you deal with it in your archive. This is much more recent. It's a young speaker named Pacton Smith. And uh, I'll let you explain after we listen to Paxton Smith who she is and how she made it into your collection. Under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Six weeks. That's all women get. We have spent our entire lives working towards our future, and without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. Donna Rubin, uh, the creator of the Speaking While Female Archive, as you mentioned, there is 50 plus years of material on reproductive rights and the great debate we've been having in this country over it. How did you assemble this aspect of your collection? Well, I looked for passionate speakers who made a cogent argument um, from different points of view. I mean, I... I know, Susan, you couldn't be expecting me to bridge the gap between those two points of view. They're very, they're very far apart, and our society is, is really ripped asunder by this issue, and, and I don't know how it's all going to be resolved. But I do know that women's voices on this issue carry particular weight because women are the one who, ones who carry children, and um, women have been speaking out about this issue for a very long time, very forcefully. And I admire Phyllis Shafley for certain qualities. I admire her commitment to her cause. I admire that she uh, mastered her material and put herself into very um, challenging situations uh, out of conviction. And I, of course, I included her in my archive because um, of those qualities. 
and and sometimes people don't like that I included her and I get and sometimes I'll write about her and about those qualities and people will argue with me why would you give space to that woman and I'll argue right back of course I would give space to that woman I'm not here to, to I'm not here to adjudicate these issues but I am here to champion and put a spotlight on a certain kind of women's advocacy passion and commitment um, through speaking, through public speaking. Now, Paxton Smith is a, it's very interesting that you put those together because she's a, a very young woman. She was, I think, um, 18 when she was, she gave that speech. She was a valedictorian at Lake Highlands High School in Dallas, I think it was 2021, and she had a prepared speech, but she got up. It was right when the heartbeat bill was being debated or just passed in Texas, and she pulled, very dramatically, she pulled out from her her red gown, uh, an alternate speech. And it was it's very, in, very inspiring for me to watch her because she begins hesitantly, but as she starts speaking, she gains a certain kind of self-possession and mastery of her material, and she makes a very cogent argument that this is a right that she, um, she thinks that she deserves and all women deserves. And she says, I will not be silent. I will not be silent. Um, she says, uh, she uses a metaphor. She says, this is a war on my body, a, you know, a war on my body, a war on my rights. And now I just found out she's writing a book using that phraseology, those, those terms as the title of her book, a war on my body, a war on my rights. So I found something to admire in, in both of those. So I want to talk a little bit more about you. You've uh, told us, uh, but it's also rather visible, that you are obsessed with this topic, uh, completely devoted <laughs> to it. Uh, I'm wondering, first of all, what your friends and family think about your obsession? Uh, is it surprising to them, or is it of a type for you? <laughs> I don't know. I think they think I'm nuts. But I think they've always thought I was nuts, so it's not new. But I, I you know, I wasn't always... Um, so interested in the speaking. I was very interested in the written word. I got, went at an older age, I went back to college and university and got a master's degree in literature. So I was always interested in words and language. In fact, that's why I was so interested in William Sapphire because I used to read his column. Every week I would read his column in the New York Times about language. I revered William Sapphire. I looked up to him enormously, the nattering nabobs of negativism. He was like a god to me. So that's why it was so astonishing when I realized he had such a blind eye to women's contributions in history. So what does my family think? I don't know. I guess they, I guess they already know I'm nuts. <laughs> how are you? Affection, I think they would affection, affectionately think I'm nuts. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> how, how are you <laughs> funding all of this? This has got to be an enormous labor, not just of time, but also resources. I'm looking for funding, so maybe your audience will have some good suggestions for me. I, sh I should be reaching out to foundations. I should be reaching out for grants. And um, if I were uh, more sophisticated, I probably would have done that two years ago. But now I'm hopefully just beginning. And what about help? Do you have anyone else working on the project? Has it been solely you? I have had uh, a couple of interns, uh, young women who are turned on by the project, you know, stimulated by it, inspired by it. it I, and I would like more. So I've been, I've reached out to universities and tried to get help, interns, um, internships, and I haven't been that successful, so I would like to be more successful at that. But I will say this, that there is an 
instant appreciation for this project. You don't have to really describe it very far. All you have to say is it's a collection of women's speeches that have been neglected. Women overlooked speeches from the past and instantly people understand it. They intuitively fits into everything that they know about women's voices in our society. And, the, you know, after all, these are generations of young, younger women. They have been through our educational system. They've had the history books that talked all about men's accomplishments, men's feats, you know, military accomplishments, legislative accomplishments. Um, they, they know that the history that they've been taught has not looked with, uh, with any a full, given a full measure to women's um, experiences. So I am very hopeful that with tools like this archive and a multitude of other assets that are, you know, that are being produced by our society, that future generations of women will have more agency and more voice in contributing to our society and making the world that we all want to have. Well, speaking of future generations, you, you said that you're a speech and debate coach uh, in your spare time. I'm not sure where that is, but in your spare time. Um, and I'm wondering about young people and the art of the speech. The age of TikTok and Instagram, uh, have young people uh, still have an appreciation for the potency and value of a speech? Well, some do. More don't, Right. I'm not prepared to say it's a losing battle, but I see the trends. I mean, we could, we could sit here and talk about reading, too. I mean, the figures show that, you know, young people aren't reading as much as they used to, which pains me enormously because I'm a big reader. I, I absorb information. I digest it and integrate it into my thinking through the written word, you know, more than I do the visual. So I'm very distressed at these trends, but I believe that, you know, there is still a a powerful contingent of people who are committed to the expression of ideas through the spoken word. So the debate, the forensic societies are very popular and going strong. And um, I see on college campuses that there's a tremendous respect for, uh, for forums like this where ideas get expressed verbally, where people put ideas, you know, express their ideas. So no, I don't think, I don't think it's a hopeless situation, but I do worry about it, which is why I'm such a a proselytizer for the spoken word. You made the point that throughout history, women's voices have been marginalized. Uh, at least in the past couple of decades, women have achieved prominence in politics, in business, arts, social sciences. Are women's speeches still being marginalized to the degree they had been earlier? I don't think, I think that we have rapidly moved in the United States and in the Western world towards um, more equality. I, I see it changing dramatically. Even in, the, even in the few years that I've been working on this project, I see far more attention to equality of space given, gender equality of space. And um, part of that has been as a response to the Me Too movement, which woke a lot of people up you know, across, the, across the world to the need for women's voices to be heard and respected and appreciated. But let's not forget that there are many, many, many parts in the world lar as larger, if not larger, where women still don't have a voice, where women still don't have rights, where women's lives, their bodies, their, um, are not, women are not able to make decisions for themselves. There are places in the world where women still have arranged marriages, of course, where women are abused. So, you know, it's a large question you're asking. Which part of the world are you talking about? <laughs> 
So as we close and recognizing that this is Women's History Month, since you've really been doing a deep dive into this in the last two years, tell me some of the ways in which your understanding or appreciation for women's contribution, particularly to American history, might have changed. I think that um, we are entering into a period, as I, as I was uh, alluding to, entering into a period in which we recognize that in order to have the nation that we aspire to, we need all voices, we need all um, expertise, knowledge, worldviews, and experiences on deck, as it were. We need to benefit from everyone's knowledge if we are to address and fix some of these enormous problems that face us. We have enormous political challenges. Of course, we have environmental, the future of our planet, you know, we have, of course, terrible geopol geopolitical problems, what's happening right now in, in Ukraine. I mean, how are we ever going to fix these problems if we don't have the best minds and the best thinking um, contributing to that? So I welcome and champion this opportunity to put a spotlight on women's voices and women's expertise and knowledge during Women's History Month, but it gives me hope for the future that we will be able to bring um, all of our resources to bear, all our assets to bear, all our human capital to bear on these tough problems. Donna Rubin is the creator and archivist of a website and soon to be a book, Speaking While Female. Thank you for joining us from New York. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 